God's Word from Romans chapter 5 at verse 12. Therefore, as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all men sinned, sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted when there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift in the grace of God, in the free gift in the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the effect of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brings justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Then as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one man's act of righteousness leads to acquittal and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All the depth of the wisdom knowledge of God. His ways are past finding out. Let us pray. We depend, O Lord, infinitely upon the illumination of the Holy Spirit to take this passage and bring from it your own truth and apply it to our hearts and lives through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We have before us one of the most significant passages in all of Holy Scripture. It is not one that everyone is prepared to grapple with in its depths but you are here and God has brought us together and we set out in faith. Last week we had the first half of this chapter, verses 1 to 11, and saw that there Paul showed us how implicit in the gift of justification by faith are all of the resources we need for daily life, such as faith and love and hope and joy. What a precious treasure this gift of justification is. Now Paul is making a transition by the Spirit from 
concluding his section on the way of justification to bring us into the results of that justification. And this is that pivotal place where a very important doctrine is set forth. He wants to show us conclusively, as if to clinch the matter, the validity of Christ's act of righteousness being applied to us. How is it that his dying can somehow be rendered to our account? He's trying to show us by the Spirit that that is the case. But in order to bolster that proposition, he reaches over for the divine parallel between Adam and Christ. This is not the only place that parallel is described. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15, it is clearly set forth where Jesus is called the second Adam. Now this parallelism is so pointed and so important in this section that one could even say that you cannot understand fully the salvation we have in Christ without understanding the effect of Adam's failure. As Adam brought us into sin, it is Christ who brings us to righteousness. And until, like a wise doctor, you are able to diagnose the disease, you will have great difficulty in prescribing the proper remedy. In fact, one could say that the fault of much religion is its defective idea of sin. And I suspect that if we were to go deep enough in the heresy of someone who did not have a proper view of the person or work of Christ, we would discover that the real root problem was a deficient idea or concept of the problem of human iniquity. This passage is so packed and so powerful that once studying it, I long to have made a whole series of it. But instead, let us let the whole section be focused in verse 17, which is a summary kind of sentence. In that, if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Let's take that much to begin. Here it is speaking of the one man who, of course, is Adam. Death reigned through the one man. Now what is implied throughout this whole section is that there is a union between the human race and Adam. Paul, as a Jewish boy learning his lessons in the synagogue, discovered that. It was a common Jewish doctrine, the unity of the human family. We are not, they said, grains of sand or wheat, but we are links in a complicated chain. And because Adam was the root of all mankind, we partake with him of human nature. But there's an even deeper unity, and it is that God has constituted Adam to be the representative of the human family. He is the federal head of it as its first father. 
and therefore the representative of it. And we can see this not only from this chapter, from, but from Genesis, where when God wants to give instructions to us about how to care for the world in which we live, he gives them to Adam and Eve, subdue the creation, uh, cultivate, care for it, and that mandate, of course, belongs to all of us through Adam. Likewise, the curse, the difficulty of the ground in bringing forth uh, food and also the pain which women endure in childbearing, these were spoken to Adam and Eve, but of course they were spoken through them also to us so that we follow after Adam. He is the representative of the race and it is God who has constituted this unity between Adam and the human family. Therefore, in that role, God makes an agreement with Adam in Genesis. And this agreement is, Adam, you will undergo a test of obedience. And if you win this test, you shall win eternal life. You will be fixed in righteousness, in status and character. You will live with me in bliss forever. And what's more, Adam, you are the representative of the whole of your descendants, and whatever you win for yourself, you win for them. That what you do with this test affects all of posterity. This agreement made with Adam we call sometimes the covenant of works because it was based upon Adam's obedience. Now often when we think of this covenant, we think simply of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, as if that were uh, the only condition of obedience. But in fact, it's the only one mentioned. But the whole law of God was given to Adam. And the tree is only mentioned because that's beyond and more specific than the commandments of God. But why the tree? The tree would embody all of Adam's obedience. It was so appropriate. It was not arbitrary. Every time Adam saw the tree, he remembered God owned the garden. He didn't. And whenever he looked at the tree, he remembered that his state was changeable. He was created able to sin, able not to sin, and he could easily become a sinner. He was not fixed though innocent, but not fixed. And when he looked at the tree, he remembered that his final rest was not in the garden. The garden was, as perfect as it was, was incomplete. And the tree pointed him to heaven. His rest was to be in heaven. There was to be a change, and he was to be with God. And he was not to be satisfied, even in paradise. So God made the test with Adam, which would involve all of us. But someone is saying, that's not fair. I can almost hear you. That's not fair for one person to be the representative of all the rest. Well, let's look at that. Throughout the scripture, in many places, God lets 
the sins or credit of one person be applied to another. For example, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, he lied to Elisha and disobeyed him, and God gave him leprosy. And he said, not only do you have leprosy, but all your house. Achan stole the booty from the people of Ai, and God caused all his house to be killed. The Amalekites suffered for the sin of Amalek. Rahab's whole house was saved because she had faith. One after another, you can cite instances where the persons who were represented were not even consulted, but God applied the sin or the credit of their leader to them. For example, in the third commandment, if you take the name of the Lord your God in vain, God will visit that iniquity upon your children unto the third and fourth generations of them that hate him. So we say this is unfair. This is, however, a way of God. Doesn't mean that yet we've fully answered that objection, but let's go further. If we say that God did not make such an agreement with Adam, and he is not our representative, then you must say that God condemned the human race to sin without a test. Are you prepared to say that? That God made us in the shape we're in and gave us no probation, no chance? I don't think you are. But you say, why didn't God let me have a chance? individually to pass the test? Why can I be brought into condemnation for the sin of someone else? Think for a moment. God didn't want a million different tests as each person appeared in the face of history and followed the example of Adam. Each one of us, in succession, would rebel against God and one after another drop into hell until there would be no one in the community of faith. Instead of a million tests, God had one test under ideal and the most favorable conditions. And the one test given to a man without bad companions, whose mind was enlightened with the lamp of life and whose will was in perfect agreement with the will of God and whose emotions were in purity and good order, this man who was at the maturest points of his powers, whose motives were pure and innocent, if anyone could pass the test for the whole of the human family, it was Adam. How gracious of God, not to test us, but to test him for us under these ideal situations. How gracious of God even to test. It was not necessary. He had created Adam and Eve out of no necessity, simply for his own glory. He could easily done away with them at any time. They did not need to continue. He needed to make no promise that they should continue. But in his grace and mercy, he gave the opportunity to be fixed in righteousness with him forever upon the simple probation of obedience to his revealed will. 
the covenant of works made with Adam for us is mysterious. I grant you that. And this brief explanation is really just touching the surface. It is mysterious and awful and solemn, but it is a fact. And it is the basis of this passage on which we are commenting just now. And it is the great reality of the origin of human sin. Well, the scripture says here in 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Death reigned. Adam, by his own fault, no fault of God, and by the fault of his seducer, Satan, sinned. And when he sinned, in the moment, he lost the divine favor. Instead of delighting in God any longer, he began to delight in himself. A moral darkness permeated his soul. Death entered, and he, though he lived, was dead. That is, life was blighted by sin. Death in the Word of God does not simply mean the parting of the soul and body. It means all of the consequences that come from sinning, all of the grief and sorrow and heartbreak and alienation that come from human sin is summed up in the biblical word death. So we read, Death reigned through that one man. That is, not only did Adam die in that moment, though he continued to live spiritually, he was dead. But each person who was his descendant at birth was immediately born out of favor with God in the same moral darkness, without the benefits and the gracious assistance of the Holy Spirit to obey the laws of God and to delight in God, so that the great chain was set in motion, and it is described here in this graphic way, death reigned through one man's sin, and death reigns yet. All of the sons of Adam, by virtue of his act, because he conferred upon them the status of sinner and the character of sinner, all sons of Adam must look to him and say, Sir, because of you, death reigns in my body. And when the dissolution comes, the breaking away of a soul from this earth, which was really not blessed to him, and that soul disembodied stands in the presence of God, he realizes the righteous one whom he has offended, and later, then, with body and soul, he receives the sentence of everlasting destruction because of God's disfavor for his sin. Death reigned through one man. That's a grim and horrible story. It's like taking a searchlight and moving it around in the depths of our wicked hearts. But... There is this great fact of verse 14, that Adam was a type 
of the one who is to come. That is, this fact that we have seen, we call imputation. Now, for the children present, that simply means that God takes the sin of one person and lays it upon another, or the credit of one person and lays it upon another. Adam was a type of one to come. That is, in this sense, in the same way that God took the sin of Adam and imputed it to all his descendants so, so that they share his status as sinner and his character as a sinful being, in that same sense of imputation, God will do something redemptive and uplifting. That God has, through Adam, introduced us to the concept of imputation. He will not waste it, but it will become a building block for him in the reversal of our ruin and in his glorious remedy, which he has designed for us. Now, this word type in the scripture means a designed resemblance, a determined prefiguration of something. It is not a casual resemblance. It just happens to look like something else. A type in scripture is God's predetermined design of resemblance, so that this is God's plan that as man's sin was imputed from Adam to all of his posterity, that same principle should apply in the remedy of our fall. And so it does. Look then at the other part of verse 17. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Ah, there's the one who is to come. Do you see how necessary it was to explain fully this concept of imputation so that now when we come to understand our salvation, Christ fits the pattern exactly? Only not exactly, because verses 15 to 17 show some differences. He said it is almost an exact parallel, but there are differences, and here they are. They're summed up in the little phrase, how much more? In other words, it's a matter of quantity. Adam, by one sin, brought us into condemnation. But Christ doesn't just forgive us of that one sin. The justification he gives us is of all our sins, past, present, and future. And it's a matter of quality. Adam plunged us into condemnation and death. Christ doesn't simply make us alive, but he brings us into the blessedness of fellowship with God. That's far better. And it's a much more of certainty. If we are utterly convinced that Adam plunged us into ruin, there can be no question of anyone here about the fact of our sinfulness. That is certain. Then how much more can we rely upon the fact that this second Adam stands ready to redeem? How much more? The remedy is far more glorious than the ruin. The cure so much greater than the cause. Christ so far above Adam, 
Salvation is heaven and condemnation is hell. Who receives this gift of the second Adam, Jesus Christ? Those who receive the abundance of grace. Those who receive. That's a, a narrow, limiting construction to show us that not all are summed up under the headship of Adam. All were summed up under the headship of, of the first Adam, but not under Christ. The reason is that though everyone has a link with Christ because he was truly human, not everyone shares the mystical union with him which is forged in the links of faith. We must be united to Christ by faith if we are to be counted part of his family. We didn't have to do a thing to be counted part of Adam's family but be born. But in order to come under the representation, the headship, the imputation of Christ, we must possess saving faith. That in all of Scripture is the instrument, the ground on which our union with Christ is made. Not our own righteousness, no, no. Not our denomination, not our color, not our respectability, but the item of saving faith links us to Christ. Now a little later on down in verse 18, we, say that, we see that it says it leads to acquittal and life for all men. And of course that is limited by what we read in 17. Those who receive, wherever all is used in Scripture, we must limit it by the context uh, in which it is found and also by the conditions set forth in other parts of the Word of God. Now do you begin to see the picture? Those who receive the abundance of grace. It's like a great succession. One by one, men and women cross the stage of history, and some receive the abundance of grace, and some do not. Some remain in Adam, and his guilt and his condemnation are imputed to them. And some come into Christ and find new life and hope in Him. The gift is not given all at once. It is given individually upon the basis of repentance and faith in the human heart. Now continuing there, it says, Those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. What does that mean? I think the meaning is referring down into verse uh, 18 and 19. In verse 18 we read, One man's act of righteousness leads to acquittal and life. You see, Christ too made a covenant with God. It is the covenant of grace. Adam made the covenant of works. With Christ is made the covenant of grace. His agreement with God is that should he pass his test, his probation, then all his spiritual seed would be imputed with his righteousness. That is, the righteousness of his life and deeds and his suffering death would be credited to them. And Christ passed his probation. He was greatly tempted. 
The enemy fiercely sought him to back off of his great mission. But our Lord kept his face like a flint. He went to the cross. He bore the agony of it. At the end, he said, it is finished. He had completed the covenant of grace, had suffered for the penalty of all men. And that one man's act of righteousness is therefore imputed to all who are in him, his spiritual seed, by faith. Or in verse 19, it is called one man's obedience. And if we look at Philippians chapter 2, we realize that he was obedient unto death. This is a specific reference to his saving and vicarious and atoning death, where on Calvary he took upon him the sins of those who believe and bore them into hell. In that act of obedience, he passed his covenantal probation. And God righteously and graciously, because of the principle of imputation, seen in Adam, seen in Scripture, can take Christ's act of obedience and put it upon us, though we are not worthy and have not done it, it rests on us. And when God looks at us, he sees us as justified by faith. Those who are part of Christ's family in this way reign in life. That's the end of verse 17. It is that they reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. What does that mean to reign in life? Well, it's just the opposite of having death reign. You have to have either two, one of two authorities in your life. Either death is reigning over you, that is, the consequences of your life are leading to the ruin and finally to hell, that's the reign of death in a human soul, or you reign over death. You reign in life. Either death is Lord of you, or you are Lord of death. And the answer is in Jesus Christ. We reign in status, which means our permanent condition. Jesus said, He that believeth in me, though he were dead, Yet shall he live, and whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. We reign over death because it cannot hold us. The moment we are absent from the body, we are present with the Lord. And our bodies will be raised up and joined together with our souls, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. We reign over death now in our character. Because all of the corruption and the consequence of human sin, which is so much a part of daily life, more and more we're able to die unto that and to live unto righteousness so that we become conquerors over the sinful tendencies of our spirits. And the corruptions and lusts that vex us become trampled under our feet. We reign in life over death, which is the consequence of human sin. And that reign, friends, goes on forever. God doesn't do things halfway. It's a permanent reign 
Ah, the picture of Revelation. His servants shall serve him. They shall see his face. And they shall reign forever and ever and ever. How glorious. Now, we've seen the test of Adam and how his guilt was imputed to us and death reigned through him. We've seen the victory of Christ and how his victory can be imputed to us and we can reign through him. Now the test is yours. What will you do with these great truths? I call on you to examine your life in the light of the law of God. That's why this passage said the law came. It came to bring sin to the surface, to ferret sin out and make it appear for what it really is. It came to make it more dramatically evident. And some of you think you're quite fine and you haven't transgressed and everything is fine, and that's only because you have not looked at your life in the mirror of the law of God. You haven't realized that the laws of God are inward as well as outward. That God has every right to regulate your motives and your thoughts as well as your hands and your feet. Thou shalt not covet is a restriction of the heart. Look at that command and find yourself a sinner. The laws of God are not only Negative, they're positive. Don't kill. Have you done everything you can to preserve life? Look at the law of God. Let it fulfill its function of bringing sin out into the open. And then seeing that sin, repent of it. Repent of being part of a race which is fallen. And don't stop there. Just as Christ's victory triumphs, let his grace then triumph in your heart. I mean by that, go on from sin to grace and realize you don't have to stay in Adam. You can come into Christ by faith. You don't come to God on your own. God doesn't work that way. You didn't come into sin on your own. You came through Adam. And you don't come to God on your own. You come through Jesus Christ by faith, trusting in Him. You are linked to Him forever and ever. Whoever is condemned is condemned because he refuses the gracious offer of God to come under the headship of Jesus Christ and have Christ's righteousness credited, imputed to him. There they are, friends, the two reigns, the reign of Adam, the reign of Christ. Death and life. Choose life. Don't you see how dreadful the sin is? 
Don't say one trifling little sin isn't going to hurt me. Look what one trifling little sin did to Adam and brought the whole human race into ruin. Look what that one trifling sin cost God, the blood of His own Son. Sin is significant, important. Flee from it. Flee out of Adam into Christ and put an infinite dependence on Him. He is the only one that can do anything with the ruins of the human race. He takes those ruins and builds a beautiful temple out of them, a habitation of God through the Spirit. Oh, glorious builder you are, Savior. Don't say anyone, please, my faith isn't strong enough. If I only had strong faith, I'd leave Adam and come to Christ. I want to say to you, it doesn't matter how strong your faith is. Suppose you had a fatal illness which would be relieved by touching an electric machine and the charge of this particular electricity would heal your illness. Suppose that were the case. Now I want to ask you, would it make any difference if you were to stride gallantly over to the machine and put your hand on it in strength? Or if you were so weak that all you could do would be to slide across the floor, pulling yourself on your stomach, and weakly, lamely putting up one finger? Wouldn't matter, would it? You made contact. You see, the strength is not in you, it's in the force of the electric power that does the healing. And such is the case with Christ. It matters not if you come striding boldly with great faith, or if you come meekly and lamely to Him, and yet your faith is genuine, as is a grain of mustard seed. That will be enough if it is right, if you're trusting in Christ alone to be your righteousness. And you can go down to your house justified. And on the way you can sing, Thanks be unto God who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Enable us, O Lord, to receive the grace we need. Grant us the gift of faith to be united to Christ. We thank you for this marvelous doctrine of imputation, your own creation for our eternal blessedness. May it set us singing, O God, and send us forth rejoicing that we need not depend on any righteousness of our own, but only on the glorious act of righteousness and obedience found in our blessed Master. In his name we ask it. Amen.